Welcome to episode 72 of the Search with Canda podcast, recorded on Sunday the 2nd of August 2020. My name is Mark Williams-Cook, and today I'm going to be talking about buy on Google, the steps Google are taking to push e-com further into their ecosystem, the internal documents that were shared during the US online marketplace dominance hearing about Google, and a little bit about CLS and infinite scroll, so how CLS is impacting modern web development practices. Buy on Google is now open and commission free. So what does this mean? On the 23rd of July, Google posted this. Over the past few months, we've made significant changes to help businesses reach more consumers and help people find the best products, prices and places to buy online. We've made it free for retailers to list products on Google Shopping in the US and we brought these free listings to search as well. So that's referring to the changes we covered a few episodes ago whereby Google has started making their Merchant Center provided feeds. So what were only paid PLAs, the product listing ads in Google Ads, those are actually now showing organically for free currently in the US and that's going to roll out internationally as well. Uh, Google goes on to say, today we're taking another important step to make it easier for retailers to sell on Google. Soon, sellers who participate in our buy on Google checkout experience will no longer have to pay us a commission fee. And we're giving retailers more choice by opening our platform to third-party providers, starting with PayPal and Shopify. So this is what the title of this post is referring to when it says buy on Google is now open. They go and say these changes are about providing all businesses from small stores to national chains and online marketplaces the best place to connect with customers regardless of where a purchase eventually occurs. With more products and stores available for discovery and the option to buy directly on Google or on a retailer's site, shoppers will have more choice across the board. Here's more on what's new for retailers. So zero commission fees when customers buy your products on Google. While retailers have several options for driving traffic to their website with free listings or with shopping ads, many also use buy on Google to give shoppers a convenient way to purchase something right when they discover it. By removing our commission fees, we're lowering the cost of doing business and making it even easier for retailers of all sizes to sell directly on Google. Starting with a pilot that will expand to all eligible sellers in the US over the next coming months. And there's a link here to learn more about the requirements for the pilot. So there's also a link to sign up. So you can actually sign up if you meet those requirements to join the waitlist. So at the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk, I'll put a link to the requirements so you can see if you're eligible and the link to the waitlist as well if you wanted to get involved in the pilot. Uh, next, they say, bring your own third-party providers starting with PayPal and Shopify. 
We've heard from retailers that they want the ability to choose their preferred services for things like payment processing, inventory and order management. That's why we're opening our platform to more digital commerce providers, beginning with Shopify for inventory and order management and PayPal and Shopify for payment processing. So if a retailer wants to sell directly on Google, they can get started even faster and continue using the tools and services that already work for their business. Or if they're new to selling online, they'll be able to choose from multiple options when they sign up in our merchant center. This is where it gets interesting. So the next point Google makes here is import your inventory with just a few clicks. To simplify our tools and make them more compatible with merchants' existing processes, we're enabling commonly used product feed formats. This means retailers can connect their inventory to sell directly on Google without having to reformat their data. We're also adding a option to let retailers add product information like images or technical specs by pulling from our existing database rather than have to upload it themselves. So I had a little dig around the technical requirements and the eligibility criteria here and what they mean by commonly used product feed formats is basically if you're providing an Amazon formatted feed that this Google service will work directly with Amazon. So it's quite clear to me that they want to make this, hey, come and sell directly, buy on Google uh, as well at least, or instead of Amazon, because we've got no commission, uh, very, very easy to choose from. So, you know, it doesn't cost you anything and in terms of the actual commission, and it's not gonna really cost you anything in terms of setup if you don't have to reformat the feed. Um, they also lastly finish with more products, more sellers, more choice. As we've made it easier for a broader set of retailers to sell on Google this year, we're also seeing a significant increase in demand to buy from and support small businesses. To help people discover these smaller merchants, we also plan to add a new small business filter on the Google Shopping tab and we'll continue adding features to help small businesses participate in commerce online. Everything we're announcing today will roll out first in the US and we're looking toward international launches later this year and in 2021. While we still have much work ahead of us, our goal is to make digital commerce more accessible for retailers of all sizes all around the world, uh, yada, yada, yada. So <clears throat> I think it's fairly obvious kind of what's happening here. So we, you know, it's commonly felt, thought, known that Google sees Amazon as one of its largest competitors in terms of there are many people who begin now if they have a commerce fo focused activity to do, they want to buy something, they will start that search on Amazon rather than Google uh, because obviously people have Amazon accounts, you know, it's the search is good, you've got things like Amazon Prime, um, whereas Google obviously had previously with their their paid listing ads, their shopping ads, the inventory range was much, much smaller and you were being sent off into individual stores like a silo. So if you were trying to look for a specific product and compare prices on Google, it was very much uh, you do a search, you go down one rabbit hole, look at a site and then you come back to Google and then you look at another one and you come back and look at another one. So the first thing, you know, Google's positioning itself doing first, I think, with the PLAs and then 
now making the PLA, PLAs free, I should say free again, because they were the shopping fees were free originally, but at least making them organic, they've massively increased the amount of inventory they can show within that shopping experience. So that shopping experience in Google has got all the built-in filters, you know, around things like price and, and brand that, that people, and uh, you know, like, want and need when they're, they're buying online. This step is another step that removes that last off-site bit of friction, which is while you can browse all of those products within Google Shopping, the integration in terms of, okay, well, I, I want this one, I want to buy it, Google realizes now if you start sending people off to third-party sites, they can't guarantee what experience that's going to be. So yeah, someone can pay for a Google ad. And I had this experience actually myself, which was um, a company was paying for Google ads. And then I went to the site and basically I wasn't, I couldn't buy what they were offering. Whereas, you know, it's very unlikely to happen with Amazon. So it seems quite an aggressive approach to me, which is, you know, they're making it commission free. Um, they're making it work with other providers, with other formats, because they want to grab this essentially this merchant market share and give people the option to sell on Google potentially a good thing I think for merchants especially with things like filters for uh, for smaller businesses I know a lot of the complaints about Amazon are, are to do with Amazon either um, looking at product data and making their own versions of successful products or kind of counterfeit things appearing usually from China listed on Amazon so being able to filter to support local businesses i think potentially is something customers might like and more choice between you know even if it is just between amazon and google uh, probably isn't a bad thing but it's certainly i think very important in terms of seo organic search pbc and digital marketing as a whole which is we're seeing these very uh, focused action commerce based terms now that whole experience is is being tied up in one platform whether that's google or whether that's amazon i think this is kind of a logical thing to talk about next uh, interesting timing so some of you may have heard or uh, like me some of you may have been watching the hearing that's going on in the US currently which is the online platforms and market power examining the dominance of Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Google. Uh, I'm not going to go into my kind of thoughts or opinions on that hearing. Um, I think you know everyone could talk about that for a long while but that's something that's happening at the moment so this this dominance of these big four companies is being explored and they're talking about potential you know anti-competitive practices and monopolies etc and as part of this hearing those companies have provided certain evidence and documents and what I want to talk about specifically is some of the Google documents that were surfaced. So you can actually download the documents that are used in the hearing. So again, I'll put a link to this in the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk if you'd like to have a look at these documents yourself. 
Um, a couple of kind of caveats is some of the um, that while some of it is redacted, it's only as far as I can see kind of personal information, but they are quite old. So looking at the Google documents I'm about to talk about, it looks like these documents themselves are I think from about 2006. So, you know, in terms especially of SEO, this is, you know, this is 14 years ago. So these are very, very, very old documents. And why I wanted to talk about them is one specific page in these documents from Google came up and is being talked about within the SEO community. So I'm going to just read the excerpt from the page of the Google document that's kind of caused this discussion. So the heading is called Continued Investment in Search Quality. So this is some internal documentation from Google where they're discussing what they're doing with search quality. And it starts with observation. We have many promising ranking initiatives underway for the coming year. Recent gains indicate there is significantly more possible on core ranking. Initiatives include, and then it's got a bullet point of a dozen or so things. So it says continued investment in our investment in our core ranking via query and document understanding. Continued investment in user signals like clicks. Our search users create the first level of network effect for search quality and we are investing in this heavily. Hard queries. Quere queries for which users are frustrated even when they have told Google all they could, there is a strong effort to improve user experience for such queries. Query structure analysis. Identify different types and look at past usage of those queries to improve ranking. Suggestions for popular queries. Rank Boost. Continue developing our learning system to take human rank, uh, rating data as input and predict new ranking signals. Non-web ranking in preparation for universal search. Improve and standardize ranking for other properties by applying tried and true web search techniques augmented with domain information. And the last point is continued work on personal personalization. So how this has been framed within the SEO community is there was a tweet that summarized this excerpt of the document that said, SEOs are gonna love this one. Yes, Google uses user signals like clicks. Yes, Google has a measure of domain authority and yes, they machine learn against human rating data. All those denials, all those years, but here it is all laid out in internal docs. So I just wanted to go through these, uh, this way this information has been framed because I think it's, um, I think it's easy to maybe um, misconstrue what you know, these documents here, these bullet points are fairly vague. And, you know, from my my opinion is they're not telling us anything particularly new. So things like uh, user signals like clicks, um, Google using these, the best example I can think of, and I've referenced it before, is a really fantastic talk by Paul Ha, who is a Google engineer in 2016. So, I mean, that's already uh, four years ago now. And he gave a really um, 
really nice in-depth, uh, well, in-depth from outsider layman point of view, I guess, um, view on how what the engineers are doing at Google and specifically how Google's working and what kind of experiments they're running. And in that talk, he specifically talked about user clicks being part of the search quality improvement process. So in terms of both ranking, uh, getting ranking right, and even when they're doing things like testing different layouts, they will look at user clicks. And interestingly, um, Paul said that, you know, while on the surface, when you think about it, you know, you, you might think, well, user clicks, you know, it's a really, really good source of actionable information. He was saying it's much harder to derive actionable things from user clicks than you might think. It, it's actually quite complicated. The document is not saying that Google is using user signals like clicks to rank individual websites and I think that's really a really important thing to take away from this so yes absolutely Google does use user signals like clicks in a whole for their search quality I know this because Google have told us this quite openly and they've given specific um, instances for this interestingly uh, I saw Bill Slorsky again uh, posted some patents that describe Google using clicks such as ranking entities in carousels, selecting top stories to display in carousels, selecting search suggestions in autocomplete dropdowns, continuing to show specific one box results, showing local organic results pursuant to the Venice update, document quality under some approaches, click rates and click durations may be used to identify web spam and ranking based on categorical quality. So there's lots of uses there outside of uh, core ranking um, and listening as well, going back to Paul's talk, it was very interesting to just hear about the separation in how the core ranking calculations are done and then for instance things like certain search features like featured snippets are kind of calculated if that's the correct term after that ranking is returned so I think there is this firstly this misunderstanding maybe or just difference of opinion what people are talking about when they say quote unquote the algorithm uh, because I've noticed Google is quite specific sometimes when they're saying that's not part of our core ranking algorithm or our ranking algorithm so they may actually be talking about a specific part of the overall set of calculations that go into producing the end results that we as users um, see in in the SERPs. Um, the second point in this kind of this tweet was saying, yes, Google has a measure measure of domain authority. Um, I did download and I read through all these documents myself. Um, I couldn't find any mention of domain authority in them. I think this is um, referring to this document mentions this um, augmented with domain information. Uh, so I think that's quite a big leap maybe to say that domain information is equal to a concept of domain authority. Um, and lastly, it says, yes, they, the, the tweet about this document says, yes, they machine learn against human rating data. So this is talking about things like the uh, the web quality raters, which we've spoken about before, which is this system Google have groups of users to manually rate 
websites against specific queries and mark them as to whether they're highly relevant or spam, etc. And then they're essentially using this human data to test how good a job their algorithms are doing. So if their algorithms are identifying some set of particular pages as good and human raters are saying they're a bad match, they can start to use this data to work out where they're going wrong. Um, certainly what I think they're doing there is, you know, as humans, we all have ways that we consciously and subconsciously uh, decide whether a, a page is good uh, as a whole or if it's good, a good match to a specific uh, thing that we want. And, you know, the, the value of having this is they're essentially getting sets of labeled data for their algorithm to compare to. So if there's whole clusters of pages that they're getting wrong, they can start running algorithms on these pages to try and pull out other factors that maybe the algorithm's currently overlooking, whether you want to call those variables or ranking factors or metrics or whatever. I've heard Google publicly talk about, which is saying they could, I didn't actually hear them saying they did, but they said they could use that data for machine learning to try and improve search quality. So, you know, all of this, I'll put a big warning label on it for you. All of this is, you know, my opinion, my interpretation based on things I've heard over the last 15 years working in SEO, listening to Google, listening to Matt Cutts, listening to John Mueller, listening to Martin Split, all the, you know, all the different people we're hearing from uh, directly from Google, reading as much as I can from Google, reading the patents, talking to people like Bill, who obviously that's what he really specializes in talking to other SEOs to to me that that kind of statement how it's framed as if this is some big reveal of Google is doing this or doing that just isn't quite right um you know in in my opinion I don't think there's anything particularly new here it's worth mentioning as well um as Bill always does just because something is in a patent doesn't necessarily mean it's implemented um, or implemented exactly in in that way um, but there's nothing really groundbreaking there for me you know yes Google does use uh, user signals with the overall search quality um, I don't think they're using them directly to rank websites we've had discussions previously on this podcast as well about uh, twiddlers and the other kind of add-on bits that Google seems to have on its algorithm uh, which which kind of contribute to switching around rankings and certainly you know I've definitely seen those um, studies where they've showed rankings changing when lots of clicks are applied to specific results and I certainly think that's something Google takes into account to try and ride the wave of if something's big in the news it does shift the intent and they do have algorithms that seem to follow that so you know queries like Halloween for example the types of sites that Google returns for that query does change throughout the year as the the majority of the user intent behind that search changes so I guess it would just be you know take it within your stride even if those things were true it probably shouldn't really change what you're actually doing day to day on SEO um, and, you know, yeah, I'm not, I guess the only other thing I'd say on that is that Google, of course, does have a very strong interest in us not knowing exactly what they're doing. Um, and again, that's something they've been fairly, 
you know to me fairly open about uh, so in the their new podcast they're doing um with uh, john gary and martin you know gary specifically said well you know this certain type of information could be ex- you know exploited um paraphrasing there um so they don't always go into the exact detail but and the the statements are carefully worded but i don't think there's any sort of particular uh big new information in this document but still interesting go and have a read of it uh, make your own mind up and if you disagree of course do uh, do let me know do tweet me always happy to have these conversations with you On the last segment of this podcast, I wanted to talk a little bit more about cumulative layout shift CLS. So if you haven't heard about this, this is one of the three web core vitals metrics that Google is going to be integrating into their algorithm in 2021. And it's one of three metrics that they believe are a good uh, general metric to measure user experience that they can roll out across uh, all different websites we did cover it twice already on the podcast so when they were first announced and a little bit more about how they're going to be integrated into ranking so cls specifically is stands for cumulative layout shift and it's a measure of how much your website is kind of shifting around Uh, as it loads or on interaction. So the more shifting around it does, that's seen as a negative uh, thing in terms of user experience. So quite commonly, uh, I've seen it happen on very advert heavy websites where you you click in on, uh, you know, some kind of clickbait advert, you start reading the article, maybe they want to get you to click through one of these slideshows or next lists. And just before you go and click everything, some more stuff loads in and, um, and you end up clicking on the ad or something. It can be really frustrating. So uh, I found a really interesting post about CLS and modern web development. Uh, It's by Adi Osmani, who is the engineering manager who's working on Google Chrome. And his post was entitled Infinite Scroll with Layout Shifts. And I found this really interesting. So he talked about the three patterns that we have with content and how we organize large amounts of content. So um, I'll go through his definitions of these just to give you a little intro as to what the post is about. So he talks about pagination. So this is obviously, if you're not aware of pagination, this is the dividing the content of a site or search results into pages. Uh, It's still the most popular strategy in terms of user experience. Pagination gives us a sense of a specific location, such as a URL, and a choice of where to go next. It's a model that works well for accessibility and SEO, and it's widely used. Because pagination requires a click to navigate to the next page, there's an argument it has more friction for engagement compared to infinite scrolling on mobile, but your mileage may vary. One of the other techniques we use is load more. So load more is a hybrid between pagination and infinite scrolling. A user must click or tap a load more button for new content to be loaded in. It gives users a feeling of control over the content with more logical breaks. It also has the benefit of letting users pause at the footer 
before deciding to load more content in. And then finally, we've got infinite scroll. So infinite scroll prohibits the user from reaching the footer of the page in many implementations. Uh, I've certainly seen that before where I've wanted to click a footer and I've had to try and chase it down the page and never got it. Uh, so infinite scroll continues pushing this content down uh, and therefore can cause layout shifts. And in fact, this is one of the main design challenges of infinite scrolling. As items are constantly loaded as the user reaches the bottom of the list, the user can see the footer for a second or two before the next collection of results is loaded and the footer is moved out of view. It's not uncommon to see sites include a list of links, newsletter dialogues or social media callouts in their footers, but as this content keeps getting pushed down on the scroll, it can make your cumulative layout shift score worse. This can also be seen in sites with load more if content is in the footer. Then goes on and gives some really nice video demonstrations of different sites and how they're handling uh, infinite scroll. So I'm going to link to this post in the show notes at search.withcanda.co.uk and I really recommend you get your devs to have a look at this or have a look at it yourself if you are doing your own development. Um, Addy boils it down to three tips which I'll go through now uh, to help your CLS score in terms of infinite scroll which is number one, to reserve enough space for content that it may be loaded in before the user scrolls to that part of the page. This can be achieved in a number of ways, including via skeleton placeholders for content that may require data fetches to complete before anything can be rendered. So he was giving examples in the videos of Facebook setting these placeholders, but them not being large enough for the content that was being loaded in. So as you scrolled and the placeholders were filled, it still caused cumulative layout shift. Secondly, remove the footer or any DOM elements at the bottom of the page that may be pushed down by content loading in. This limits the impact on CLS. And I think that's a really good and really simple tip a lot of people can have with infinite scrolling, because if you've got an infinite scroll, that footer is obviously useless uh, because users aren't going to be able to catch it. So on the pages you're implementing infinite scroll, it'd be a good idea to remove the footer. And even if you're not quite there with the placeholders, you're going to improve your CLS score and maybe frustrate your users less. And lastly, he said prefetch data and images for below the fold content so that by the time a user scrolls that far, it's already there. This approach is more complex, but goes beyond just reserving space for the next sets of content because there's a good chance it's already been fetched. So the post is really good. As I said, I'll link to it in the show notes. Go and read it, get your developers to read it, talk to them about it. It's a good time to start getting everyone on board with these web core vitals. So lar largest contentful paint, um, the delay for time to interaction and um, this CLS. So start get, having these conversations with development teams, with internal developers now. Let them know what those metrics are. Get them to be measuring them on sites. Um, let them know it's going to have an SEO impact uh, in 2021. And it's you know it's a good set of three um, metrics we can use for user experience that aren't just based around speed. So speed, you know, speed does not equal good user performance. They're different. They're different things. So get your devs to read it, read it yourself and start those discussions. So that's everything for this episode. I'll be back 
on Monday the 10th of August. Uh, please tune in then. Uh, please subscribe, leave us a review if you're enjoying the podcast and otherwise have a brilliant week. Thank you.